Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. We're happy to have you here, and know that you are welcome here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcriptions of the show are available. The link is in the show notes. Hey, I got a new job! I'm going to be working as an auto technician, which is fun and is also just a load of stress off my mind. Other than that, not a whole lot going on. Been working on auditions and voice acting gigs. Speaking of, I'm a voice actor and audiobook narrator, in case you didn't know. So if you have an audio project you'd like voiced, a book you'd like to see narrated, or a YouTube video that needs a voiceover, I'm happy to help. Just send me an email and we'll talk rates. The Weird Tales Podcast at gmail.com. Last note, there is some racism in this story. The stance of the Weird Tales podcast has always been, and will always be, that racism is wrong regardless of what time period it happened in. Just because this is the way society was did not make it right then, and does not make it right now. I don't ignore it or edit it out, because to do so would be to spit on the efforts of those who have fought against it, and those who have suffered under it. Thank you so much, and let's get into the story. Leiningen vs. the Ants by Carl Stevenson Unless they alter their course, and there's no reason why they should, they'll reach your plantation in two days at the latest. Leiningen sucked placidly at a cigar about the size of a corn cob, and for a few seconds gazed without answering at the agitated district commissioner. Then he took the cigar from his lips and leaned slightly forward. With his bristling gray hair, bulky nose, and lucid eyes, he had the look of an aging and shabby eagle. Decent of you, he murmured, paddling all this way just to give me the tip. But you're pulling my leg, of course, when you say I must do a bunk. Why, even a herd of saurians couldn't drive me from this plantation of mine. The Brazilian official threw up lean and lanky arms and clawed the air with wildly distended fingers. Leiningen, he shouted, you're insane. They're not creatures you can fight. They're an elemental, an act of God. Ten miles long, two miles wide. Ants. Nothing but ants. And every single one of them a fiend from hell. Before you can spit three times, they'll eat a full-grown buffalo to the bones. And I tell you, if you don't clear out at once, there'll be nothing left of you but a skeleton picked as clean as your own plantation. Leiningen grinned. Act of God, my eye. Anyway, I'm not an old woman. I'm not going to run for it just because an elemental's on the way. And don't think I'm the kind of fathead who tries to fend off lightning with his fists, either. I use my intelligence, old man. With me, the brain isn't a second blind gut. I know what it's there for. When I began this model farm in Plantation three years ago, I took into account all that could conceivably happen to it. And now, I'm ready for anything and everything, including your aunts. The Brazilian rose heavily to his feet. I've done my best, he gasped. Your obstinacy endangers not only yourself, but the lives of your 400 workers. You don't know these ants. Leiningen accompanied him down to the river where the government launch was moored. The vessel cast off. As it moved downstream, the exclamation mark neared the rail and began waving its arms frantically. Long after the launch had disappeared round the bend, Leiningen thought he could still hear that dimming, imploring voice. You don't know them! I tell you, you don't know them! But the reported enemy was by no means unfamiliar to the planter. Before he started work on his settlement, he had lived long enough in the country to see for himself the fearful devastation sometimes wrought by these ravenous insects in their campaigns for food. 
but since then he had planned measures of defense accordingly, and these, he was convinced, were in every way adequate to withstand the approaching peril. Moreover, during his three years as a planter, Leiningen had met and defeated drought, hood, plague, and all other acts of God which had come against him unlike his fellow settlers in the district who had made little or no resistance. This unbroken success he attributed solely to the observance of his lifelong motto, the human brain needs only to become fully aware of its powers to conquer even the elements. Dollards reeled senselessly and aimlessly into the abyss. Cranks, however brilliant, lost their heads when circumstances suddenly altered or accelerated and ran into stone walls. Sluggards drifted with the current until they were caught in whirlpools and dragged under. But such disasters, Leiningen contended, merely strengthened his argument that intelligence, directed aright, invariably makes man the master of his fate. Yes, Leiningen had always known how to grapple with life. Even here, in this Brazilian wilderness, his brain had triumphed over every difficulty and danger it had so far encountered. First, he had vanquished primal forces by cunning and organization. Then he had enlisted the resources of modern science to increase miraculously the yield of his plantation, and now he was sure he would prove more than a match for the irresistible ants. That same evening, however, Leiningen assembled his workers. He had no intention of waiting till the news reached their ears from other sources. Most of them had been born in the district. The cry, the ants are coming, was to them an imperative signal for instant panic-stricken flight, a spring for life itself. But so great was the Indians' trust in Leiningen, in Leiningen's word and in Leiningen's wisdom, that they received his curt tidings and his orders for the imminent struggle with the calmness with which they were given. They waited, unafraid, alert, as if for the beginning of a new game or hunt which he had just described to them. The ants were indeed mighty, but not so mighty as the boss. Let them come. They came at noon the second day. Their approach was announced by the wild unrest of the horses, scarcely controllable now either in stall or under rider, scenting from afar a vapor instinct with horror. It was announced by a stampede of animals, timid and savage, hurtling past each other, jaguars and pumas flashing by nimble stags of the pompous, bulky tapirs, no more hunters themselves hunted, outpacing fleet kinkajous, maddened herds of cattle, heads lowered, nostrils snorting, rushing through tribes of loping monkeys, chattering in a dementia of terror. Then followed the creeping and springing denizens of bush and steppe, big and little rodents, snakes and lizards. Pell-mell the rabble swarmed down the hill to the plantation, scattered right and left before the barrier of the water-filled ditch, then sped onwards to the river, where, again hindered, they fled along its bank out of sight. This water-filled ditch was one of the defense measures which Leiningen had long since prepared against the advent of the ants. It encompassed three sides of the plantation like a huge horseshoe. Twelve feet across, but not very deep when dry, it could hardly be described as an obstacle to either man or beast, but the ends of the horseshoe ran into the river which formed the northern boundary and the fourth side of the plantation. And at the end, nearer the house and outbuildings in the middle of the plantation, Leiningen had constructed a dam by means of which water from the river could be diverted into the ditch. So now, by opening the dam, he was able to fling an imposing girdle of water, a huge quadrilateral with the river at its base, completely around the plantation, like the moat encircling a medieval city. 
Unless the ants were clever enough to build rafts, they had no hope of reaching the plantation, Leiningen concluded. The 12-foot water ditch seemed to afford in itself all the security needed. But while awaiting the arrival of the ants, Leiningen made a further improvement. The western section of the ditch ran along the edge of a tamarind wood, and the branches of some great trees reached over the water. Leiningen now had them lopped so that ants could not descend from them within the moat. The women and children, then the herds of cattle, were escorted by peons on rafts over the river to remain on the other side in absolute safety until the plunderers had departed. Leiningen gave this instruction not because he believed the non-combatants were in any danger, but in order to avoid hampering the efficiency of the defenders. Critical situations first become crises, he explained to his men, when oxen or women get excited. Finally, he made a careful inspection of the inner moat, a smaller ditch lined with concrete which extended around the hill on which stood the ranch house, barns, stables, and other buildings. Into this concrete ditch emptied the inflow pipes from three great petrol tanks. If by some miracle the ants managed to cross the water and reach the plantation, this rampart of petrol would be an absolute impassable protection for the besieged and their dwellings and stock. Such, at least, was Leiningen's opinion. He stationed his men at irregular distances along the water ditch, the first line of defense. Then he lay down in his hammock and puffed drowsily away at his pipe until a peon came with the report that the ants had been observed far away in the south. Leiningen mounted his horse, which at the feel of its master seemed to forget its uneasiness, and rode leisurely in the direction of the threatening offensive. The southern stretch of ditch, the upper side of the quadrilateral, was nearly three miles long. From its center, one could survey the entire countryside. This was destined to be the scene of the outbreak of war between Leiningen's brain and twenty square miles of life-destroying ants. It was a sight one could never forget. Over the range of hills, as far as I could see, crept a darkening hem, ever longer and broader, until the shadows spread across the slope from east to west, then downwards, downwards, uncannily swift, and all the green herbage of that wide vista was being mown as by a giant sickle, leaving only the vast moving shadow, extending, deepening, and moving rapidly nearer. When Leiningen's men, behind their barrier of water, perceived the approach of the long-expected foe, they gave vent to their suspense in screams and imprecations. But as the distance began to lessen between the sons of hell and the water ditch, they relapsed into silence. Before the advance of that awe-inspiring throng, their belief in the powers of the boss began to steadily dwindle. Even Leiningen himself, who had ridden up just in time to restore their loss of heart by a display of unshakable calm, even he could not free himself from a qualm of malaise. Yonder were thousands of millions of voracious jaws bearing down upon him, and only a suddenly insignificant narrow ditch lay between him and his men and being gnawed to the bones before you can spit three times. Hadn't this brain for once taken on more than it can manage? If the blighters decided to rush the ditch, fill it to the brim with their corpses, there'd still be more than enough to destroy every trace of that cranium of his. The planter's chin jutted. They hadn't got him yet, and he'd see to it they never would. While he could think at all, he'd flout both death and the devil. The hostile army was approaching in perfect formation. 
No human battalion, however well drilled, could ever hope to rival the precision of that advance. Along a front that moved forward as uniformly as a straight line, the ants drew nearer and nearer to the water ditch. Then, when they learned through their scouts the nature of the obstacle, the two outlying wings of the army detached themselves from the main body and marched down the western and eastern sides of the ditch. This surrounding maneuver took rather more than an hour to accomplish. No doubt the ants expected that at some point they would find a crossing. During this outflanking movement by the wings, the army on the center and southern front remained still. The besieged were therefore able to contemplate at their leisure the thumb-long, reddish-black, long-legged insects. Some of the Indians believed they could see, too, intent on them, the brilliant cold eyes and the razor-edged mandibles of this host of infinity. It is not easy for the average person to imagine that an animal, not to mention an insect, can think. But now, both the European brain of Leiningen and the primitive brains of the Indians began to stir with the unpleasant foreboding that inside every single one of that deluge of insects dwelt a thought. And that thought was, ditch or no ditch, we'll get to your flesh. Not until four o'clock did the wings reach the horseshoe ends of the ditch, only to find that these ran into the great river. Through some kind of secret telegraphy, the report must then have flashed very swiftly indeed along the entire enemy line, and Leningrad, riding, no longer casually, along his side of the ditch, noticed by energetic and widespread movements of troops that for some unknown reason the news of the Czech had its greatest effect on the southern front, where the main army was massed. Perhaps the failure to find a way over the ditch was persuading the ants to withdraw from the plantation in search of spoils more easily attainable. An immense flood of ants, about a hundred yards in width, was pouring in a glimmering black cataract down the far slope of the ditch. Many thousands were already drowning in the sluggish, creeping flow, but they were followed by troop after troop who clambered over their sinking comrades and then themselves served as dying bridges to the reserves hurrying on in their rear. Shoals of ants were being carried away by the current into the middle of the ditch, where gradually they broke asunder and then, exhausted by their struggles, vanished below the surface. Nevertheless, the wavering, floundering, hundred-yard front was remorselessly, if slowly, advancing towards the besieged on the other bank. Leiningen had been wrong when he supposed the enemy would first have to fill the ditch with their bodies before they could cross. Instead, they merely needed to act as stepping stones as they swam and sank to the hordes ever pressing onward from behind. Near Leiningen, a few mounted herdsmen awaited his orders. He sent one to the weir, the river must be dammed more strongly, to increase the speed and power of the water coursing through the ditch. A second peon was dispatched to the outhouses to bring spade and petrol sprinklers. A third rode away to summon to the zone of the offensive all the men except the observation posts on the nearby sections of the ditch, which were not yet actively threatened. The ants were getting across far more quickly than Leiningen would have deemed possible. Impelled by the mighty cascade behind them, they struggled nearer and nearer to the inner bank. The momentum of the attack was so great that neither the tardy flow of the stream nor its downward pull could exert its proper force, and into the gap left by every submerging insect hastened forward a dozen more. When reinforcements reached Leiningen, the invaders were halfway over. The planter had to admit to himself that it was only by a stroke of luck for him that the ants were attempting the crossing on a relatively short front, 
Had they assaulted simultaneously along the entire length of the ditch, the outlook for the defenders would have been black indeed. Even as it was, it could hardly be described as rosy, though the planter seemed quite unaware that death in a gruesome form was drawing closer and closer. As the war between his brain and the act of God reached its climax, the very shadow of annihilation began to pale to Leiningen, who now felt like a champion in a new Olympic game, a gigantic and thrilling contest from which he was determined to emerge victor. Such indeed was his aura of confidence that the Indians forgot their stupefied fear of the peril only a yard or two away. Under the planter's supervision, they began fervidly digging up to the edge of the bank and throwing clods of earth and spadefuls of sand into the midst of the hostile fleet. The petrol sprinklers, hitherto used to destroy pests and blights on the plantation, were also brought into action. Streams of evil-reeking oil now soared and fell over an enemy already in disorder through the bombardment of earth and sand. The ants responded to these vigorous and successful measures of defense by further developments of their offensive. Entire clumps of huddling insects began to roll down the opposite bank into the water. At the same time, Leiningen noticed that the ants were now attacking along an ever-widening front. As the numbers both of his men and his petrol sprinklers were severely limited, this rapid extension of the line of battle was becoming an overwhelming danger. To add to his difficulties, the very clods of earth they flung into that black floating carpet often whirled fragments toward the defender's side, and here and there dark ribbons were already mounting the inner bank. True, whenever a man saw these, they could still be driven back into the water by spadefuls of earth or jets of petrol, but the file of defenders was too sparse and scattered to hold off at all points these landing parties, and though the peons toiled like madmen, their plight became momentarily more perilous. One man, struck with his spade and an enemy clump, did not draw it back quickly enough from the water. In a trice, the wooden shaft swarmed with upward scurrying insects. With a curse, he dropped the spade into the ditch. Too late, they were already on his body. They lost no time. Wherever they encountered bare flesh, they bit deeply. A few, bigger than the rest, carried in their hindquarters a sting which injected a burning and paralyzing venom. Screaming, frantic with pain, the peon danced and twirled like a dervish. Realizing that another such casualty, yes, perhaps this alone, might plunge his men into confusion and destroy their morale, Leningen roared in a bellow louder than the yells of the victim, Into the petrol, idiots! Douse your paws in the petrol! The dervish ceased his pirouette as if transfixed, then tore off his shirt and plunged his arm and the ants hanging to it up to the shoulder in one of the larger open tins of petrol. But even then, the fierce mandibles did not slacken. Another peon had to help him squash and detach each separate insect. Distracted by the episode, some defenders had turned away from the ditch, and now cries of fury, a thudding of spades, and a wild trampling to and fro showed that the ants had made full use of the interval, though luckily only a few had managed to get across. The men set to work again desperately with the barrage of earth and sand. Meanwhile, an old Indian, who acted as medicine man to the plantation workers, gave the bitten peon a drink he had prepared some hours before, which he claimed possessed the virtue of dissolving and weakening ants' venom. Leiningen surveyed his position. A dispassionate observer would have estimated the odds against him at a thousand to one, but then such an onlooker would have reckoned only by what he saw, the advance of myriad battalions of ants against the futile efforts of a few defenders, and not by the unseen activity that can go on in a man's brain. 
for Leiningen had not erred when he decided he would fight Elemental with Elemental. The water in the ditch was beginning to rise. The stronger damming of the river was making itself apparent. Visibly, the swiftness and power of the masses of water increased, swirling into quicker and quicker movement, its living black surface dispersing its pattern, carrying away more and more of it in the hastening current. Victory had been snatched from the very jaws of defeat. With a hysterical shout of joy, the peons feverishly intensified their bombardment of earth clods and sand. And now the wide cataract down the opposite bank was thinning and ceasing, as if the ants were becoming aware that they could not attain their aim. They were scurrying back up the slope to safety. All the troops so far hurled into the ditch had been sacrificed in vain. Drowned and floundering insects eddied in thousands along the flow, while Indians running on the bank destroyed every swimmer that reached the side. Not until the ditch curved towards the east did the scattered ranks assemble again in a coherent mass, and now, exhausted and half-numbed, they were in no condition to ascend the bank. Fusillades of clods drove them round the bend towards the mouth of the ditch and then into the river, wherein they vanished without leaving a trace. The news ran swiftly along the entire chain of outposts, and soon a long scattered line of laughing men could be seen hastening along the ditch towards the scene of victory. For once they seemed to have lost all their native reserve, for it was in wild abandon now they celebrated the triumph, as if they were no longer thousands of millions of merciless, cold and hungry eyes watching them from the opposite bank, watching and waiting. The sun sank behind the rim of the tamarind wood, and twilight descended into night. It was not only hoped, but expected, that the ants would remain quiet until dawn. But to defeat any forlorn attempt at a crossing, the flow of water through the ditch was powerfully increased by opening the dam still further. In spite of this impregnable barrier, Leiningen was not yet altogether convinced that the ants would not venture another surprise attack. He ordered his men to camp along the bank overnight. He also detailed parties of them to patrol the ditch in two of his motor cars and ceaselessly to illuminate the surface of the water with headlights and electric torches. After having taken all the precautions he deemed necessary, the farmer ate his supper with considerable appetite and went to bed. His slumbers were in no wise disturbed by the memory of the waiting, live twenty square miles. Don found a thoroughly refreshed and active line engine riding along the edge of the ditch. The planter saw before him a motionless and unaltered throng of besiegers. He studied the wide belt of water between them and the plantation, and for a moment almost regretted that the fight had ended so soon and so simply. In the comforting, matter-of-fact light of morning, it seemed to him now that the ants hadn't the ghost of a chance to cross the ditch. Even if they plunged headlong into it on all three fronts at once, the force of the now-powerful current would inevitably sweep them away. He had got quite a thrill out of the fight. Pity it was already over. He rode along the eastern and southern sections of the ditch and found everything in order. He reached the western section opposite the Tamarind Wood, and here, contrary to the other battlefronts, he found the enemy very busy indeed. The trunks and branches of the trees and the creepers of the lianas on the far bank of the ditch fairly swarmed with industrious insects. But instead of eating the leaves there and then, they were merely gnawing through the stalks so that a thick green shower fell steadily to the ground. No doubt they were victualling columns sent out to obtain provender for the rest of the army. The discovery did not surprise Leiningen. He did not need to be told that ants are intelligent, 
that certain species even use objects as milk cows, watchdogs, and slaves. He was well aware of their power of adaptation, their sense of discipline, their marvelous talent for organization. His belief that a foray to supply the army was in progress was strengthened when he saw the leaves that fell to the ground being dragged to the troops waiting outside the wood. Then, all at once, he realized the aim that reign of green was intended to serve. Each single leaf, pulled or pushed by dozens of toiling insects, was borne straight to the edge of the ditch. Even as Macbeth watched the approach of Burnham Wood in the hands of his enemies, Leiningen saw the tamarind wood move nearer and nearer in the mandibles of the ants. Unlike the fae Scott, however, he did not lose his nerve. No witches had prophesied his doom, and if they had, he would have slept just as soundly. All the same, he was forced to admit to himself that the situation was far more ominous than that of the day before. He had thought it impossible for the ants to build rafts for themselves. Well, here they were, coming in thousands, more than enough to bridge the ditch. Leaves after leaves rustled down the slope into the water where the current drew them away from the bank and carried them into midstream, and every single leaf carried several ants. This time, the farmer did not trust to the alacrity of his messengers. He galloped away, leaning from his saddle and yelling orders as he rushed past outpost after outpost. Bring petrol pumps to the southwest front. Issue spades to every man along the line facing the wood. And arrived at the eastern and southern sections. He dispatched every man except the observation posts to the menaced west. Then, as he rode past the stretch where the ants had failed to cross the day before, he witnessed a brief but impressive scene. Down the slope of the distant hill, there came towards him a singular being, writhing rather than running, an animal-like blackened statue with shapeless head and four quivering feet that knuckled under almost ceaselessly. When the creature reached the far bank of the ditch and collapsed opposite Leiningen, he recognized it as a pampas stag, covered over and over with ants. It had strayed near the zone of the army. As usual, they had attacked its eyes first. Blinded, it had reeled in the madness of hideous torment, straight into the ranks of its persecutors, and now the beast swayed to and fro in its death agony. With a shot from his rifle, Leiningen put it out of his misery. Then he pulled out his watch. He hadn't a second to lose, but for life itself he could not have denied his curiosity the satisfaction of knowing how long the ants would take, for personal reasons, so to speak. After six minutes, the white, polished bones alone remained. That's how he himself would look before you can... Leiningen spat once and put spurs to his horse. And that was part one of Leiningen versus the Ants by Carl Stevenson. Thank you so much, everyone who comes in and listens week after week. I am grateful for all of you. Again, I am a voice actor and an audiobook narrator. So if you have a commission you'd like filled, send me an email at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com and I'll let you know my rates. Other than that, if you'd like to support the show and help keep it afloat, feel free to become a patron. There are tiers for every budget and I'm honestly grateful for any support you feel you can give. Patreon.com slash The Weird Tales Podcast. Amber Vale, thank you so much. Stephen Meyer, thank you. Lucas Nicholson, thank you. Franklin Jones, thank you. Hermagoras, thank you. I am grateful for all of the support I receive and am completely unworthy of any of it. 
That will wrap it up for this week. I hope you're enjoying the story. Thank you so much for listening. Please, please, please get vaccinated if you haven't already. Wear a mask, even if you have. Stay home as much as possible. And just, in general, look out for each other. And remember that a journey will have pain and failure. It is not only the steps forward that we must accept. It is the stumbles, the trials, the knowledge that we will fail, that we will hurt those around us. But if we stop, if we accept the person we are when we fall, the journey ends. That failure becomes our destination. To love the journey is to accept no such end. The most important step any person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Da-da-da-da-da-da! Here's the bloops! I'm ready for anything and everything, including your ants. Cat interlude. Hey, buddy. How you doing? You have food and water. You have no reason to be whining at me. Come here. You can come up here if you're going to be quiet, okay? No? Can I interest you over here? It was not only hoped, but expected, that the ants would remain quiet until dawn. But to defeat any forlorn attempt at a crossing, the flow of water through the ditch was powerfully increased by opening the dam still further. There's a quote mark there, but for absolutely no reason, because that's not anyone talking, that's just narrative.